You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Global markets have been rattled by fears about the rapidly spreading Delta variant of COVID-19. But another threat also looms. Can the economic recovery survive the end of emergency stimulus? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, and also coming up on today's show, why the fracking tycoons of West Texas have changed their tune. The motto has changed, really, from frack everything almost to uh, to keep it in the ground, that motto of climate change activists. And we meet the Bitcoin miners deep in rural China who are packing up and shipping out. Miners were ordered to clear out computers and demolish buildings. You've moved all this in the space of one week? Yeah, three days. Three days. Yeah. Three days of hard work. But first, financial markets have steadied somewhat after registering their sharpest sell-offs in months early this week. The rapid spread of the Delta variant has sparked fears about the future of the global economic recovery. This time last year, rich country governments used every weapon in their arsenal, and some new ones, to shore up economies. I signed the single biggest economic relief package in American history, and I must say, or any other package, by the way. For the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. Deutschland wird das, was notwendig ist, tun, um seiner Wirtschaft zu helfen. Whatever your situation may be, we're in your corner. But most of these extraordinary stimulus measures are about to expire. So has the damage from COVID-19 been avoided or merely deferred? Well, it's a picture of confusion. Callum Williams is The Economist's senior economics writer. The economic data is kind of up and down, particularly what you might call the high-frequency indicators. So the kind of very rapid forms of data that economists and markets people use. You've got a bunch of these indicators that have kind of slightly started to, to weaken, although they're still looking better than they were a month ago. The actual kind of real economic data is still pretty strong. For instance, if you look at the US poverty rate, it is very, very, very marginally higher than it was in February 2020. So it's not a good development, but it's certainly a lot better than people had thought. Again, if you look at bankruptcies in some countries, they're down by as much as 50%. So what this is all to do with is that there's there's just enormous uncertainty about a couple of things. Perhaps the biggest one 
right now is this question of the Delta variant. And the other thing that people are now realizing, and which feeds into this idea that the economic recovery might slow, is the fact that governments are starting in a big way to unwind a lot of the emergency measures that they put in place 18 months ago. There are a huge range of them, aren't there? What, how would you categorize the most important sorts of emergency measure? You're absolutely right. There's loads of different kinds of measures from furlough schemes, stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, loan moratoria, grants. I mean, there's just so many. Of course, what this meant is that in 2020, uh, governments across the world started to run huge budget deficits. And what a lot of governments want to do now is to close those deficits. So what we're seeing between now and 2022 is an adjustment in the region of 5% of GDP of fiscal policy, which is which is actually pretty massive. Yeah, I suppose one of the most obvious ways in which that will happen is when the cash transfers that governments have been making in America and elsewhere when they end. I mean, what what happens to spending? Yeah, these big grants coming to an end, basically. Half of US states uh, this month are eliminating a $300 a week supplement to unemployment insurance. The way I think it's best to think about this is not to think about the flow of money going into people's bank accounts, but to think about the stock of money that they already have. Now, not everybody has managed to save in the past year and a half. Absolutely not. But on average, people have and in in pretty significant numbers. So if you're looking at the rich world as a whole, you've got over $3 trillion worth of what you might call excess savings. And so the question on this front, at least, is, is not really it's a concern that these payments are stopping, but it's the question of, well, what are people going to do with the savings they've piled up? And I suppose they're likely to be especially nervous if they fear they they might lose their jobs. And and lots might, right? Because also coming to an end, all these furlough schemes and other ways of saving jobs artificially. Exactly. So this is not so much of a problem in the US because the US doesn't really have a furlough scheme in the same way as, say, Europe, UK, Australia, Japan, you still have a lot of people who are on these schemes. You know, it's roughly 5% of the workforce of the the biggest economies in, in Europe. So if all those people are in jobs that are never coming back, that's a huge number of people you're adding to the unemployment rolls. The interesting kind of case study, I think, and really the only case study we have so far is Australia, which is obviously in a very different place COVID-wise than a lot of other countries. But it got rid of its job protection scheme in in March. And there were concerns that unemployment was going to soar. But it didn't. It actually fell. And now unemployment in Australia is lower than it was before COVID. The big debate at the moment as regards labour markets is not that workers are struggling to find jobs, but that employers are struggling to find workers. So I think on that front, there's some room for optimism, actually, because workers at the moment have actually quite a lot of bargaining power. I don't want to be relentlessly negative, Callum, but some reason for optimism. But surely, besides the job protections and the cash transfer, people have also benefited from moratoriums on, on debts, on rents and so on. What happens when all those come to you? So, yeah, so I think on this one, it's less easy to be optimistic basically because there's much less by way of history to guide us. So if you take the example of commercial rents, this kind of illustrates why it's so hard to know what's what's going to happen because it's kind of been done in a very informal and kind of quite disorganised way. So no one really knows quite how many people have asked for deferred rents, how many have been accepted, whether it's a 50% cut or a 75% cut or a 100% cut in the rent. It's not really ever clear how companies account for this stuff in their financial accounts. And in the national accounts, so the kind of GDP measures, it's also very unclear whether, if at all, these kind of forthcoming payments are recorded. For instance, if you look at what's going on in the in the US at the moment, 
various different economists have come up with estimates of what the back rent that households owe is. And it varies by a factor of six. I mean, that's just enormous. So on this front, I completely agree. There is, there's much more uncertainty and it could turn out much worse. But hasn't some evidence emerged already? I mean, some deferred loans and deferred rents have already come due, haven't they? They have. So in the Eurozone, for instance, the majority of moratoria on loans have already lifted. The evidence from that suggests the, the sort of rate of repayment is only marginally lower than it is for other sorts of loans. Even the most pessimistic estimates of the bill that's due, it's not an enormous cause for concern, I don't think. So for instance, if you look, we did some research and looked into what might be a plausible estimate for how much commercial rent is due in America. And it's in the region of 3% of total commercial rents due in a normal year. To circle back to to where you began, Callum, to what extent is the spread of the Delta variant uh, raising questions about all of this? Are, Are governments beginning to look at whether they should extend some of these emergency measures rather than, well, face up to the fiscal cliff edge full on? That really depends on your view of lockdown. If it gets to the point where proper lockdowns or proper restrictions on mobility are required, then yes, I think that would be a logical consequence. You have seen some rowing back of some virus control measures. So obviously Israel has reimposed the mask mandate, so has Los Angeles County. But you really haven't really seen any sense that large-scale proper restrictions on mobility are coming back. The vaccines are doing a wonderful job of ensuring that cases translate into hospitalizations and deaths to a far lesser extent than was once the case. I think the other thing that governments need to bear in mind, though, which is away from this idea of what to do with lockdowns, is to recognize that as these stimulus measures are withdrawn, while it's true that maybe on aggregates it doesn't pose a huge threat to the economic recovery, what is also true is that there will be a lot of concentrated pain. It seems almost inevitable that you know evictions in the US are going to rise. It is probably inevitable that there will be some people who were kind of already on the breadline with the extra $300 a week and now will be pushed under it. So the challenge, I guess, for governments for this year, next and, and beyond is not is not so much to think about universal payments, but is to recognise where people are hurting and direct help appropriately. Callum Williams, thanks. Thanks, Simon. To read Callum's analysis of the coming fiscal cliff edges in full, subscribe to The Economist. There's a special introductory offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you are already a subscriber, you can join two of our Money Talks regulars, Alice Fullwood, our Wall Street correspondent, and our Buttonwood columnist, John O'Sullivan, for a live subscriber-only event on Thursday, July the 29th. They'll be delving deep into the inner workings of financial markets and revealing what economist journalists look for when trying to make sense of market movements. To register and submit your questions to Alice and John, go to economist.com slash markets event. That's economist.com slash markets event. You can find both that link and the link to subscribe in the notes for this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next on Sunday, the oil cartel OPEC and its allies reached a long-awaited deal over increasing production. It gives market clear clarity. It gives the market direction. It gives the market a vision of where we'll be heading. The group, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, will pump a further 400,000 barrels a day each month from August. It enables people to understand how progressively that supply would come and how cautiously it will also come. The price of oil fell on the news. It's since fallen further, also shaken by jitters over the Delta variant. Those moves are being watched carefully by the most powerful group of oil producers not part of the OPEC Plus deal. The American oil men whose shale fracking bonanza over the past few years turned the United States into the world's biggest oil producer. If you'd asked me a couple of years ago to point to the archetypal tycoon in the shale industry, I would probably have pointed to Scott Sheffield, the boss of Pioneer Natural Resources, which is the biggest fracker in the Permian Basin, which is the biggest shale basin in America. Our Schumpeter columnist Henry Trix has been following the progress of America's frackers since the boom began. I would have described him back then as probably the Permian Basin's greatest free market evangelist. He described the Permian Basin as like Gawa, Saudi Arabia's biggest oil field. And uh, he was somewhat infamously referred to as the mother fracker (laughs) by a short seller who had doubts about the abundance of, of crude. He was a guy who was so intent on drilling that he could have almost epitomized the phrase drill, baby, drill. You mentioned the uh, oil sheiks of Gawa. Of course, they they grew to have enormous global influence, I suppose. Was the same true of, of people like Mr. Sheffield? Well, certainly it seemed like that through much of the 2010s. This mania to drill helped create what uh, what Donald Trump called American energy dominance. We are now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. We are independent and we do not need Middle East oil. And there was this sense of the shale drillers taking on the sheikhs uh, in the Persian Gulf and basically breaking up, if you like, the stranglehold that their cartel had long had over the oil markets. It was backed by a lot of money coming from Wall Street, both in the form of debt and in the form of equity. It was kind of an exciting time. Not for nothing was it called the shale revolution. However, the exuberance came to a crashing halt last year during the pandemic when the oil price collapsed. Oil prices dipped again this week, but they've still recovered dramatically since last year's fall. Yes, they have. Um, It's been a remarkable turnaround. Recently, American crude hit a six-year high. A lot of this is because of actually the work of OPEC with Russia as well. 
Strangely enough, however, it's now the shale industry rather than OPEC that seems to cast itself as the guardian of high oil prices. There's been a sort of a marked shift in attitudes, in their rhetoric, and in their whole strategy in the last few years. How so, Henry? What do you mean by that? Well, if you take Scott Sheffield, for example, he sort of epitomizes this transformation. He retired back in 2016 to his 2,300-acre ranch, but uh, he began to realize that actually there were sort of worrying trends on the, on the horizon. And in 2019, he came back to Pioneer in order to try and engineer a turnaround. And he told me that the turnaround was driven by two factors. The first one was the tendency of the shale companies to just overdrill, to pump too much oil, even when there was very little profit in that. And the other factor was basically the, the sense that soon oil demand would peak. He says that the industry has started to realize that in order to remain relevant and attractive to investors, it has to reinvent itself. And as a result, the motto has changed really from frack everything almost to uh, to keep it in the ground. That motto of climate change activists to drill as little as they can get away with and instead pour as much cash as they can back into the pockets of their investors. So it sounds as if that strategy is paying off quite well if he has the cash to, to return to investors. It is becoming a lot more profitable. You know, Pioneer has engineered this to a certain extent by promising that over the next few years, it will maintain its production growth at a relatively modest 5%. And other players, including an even bigger oil company, ConocoPhillips, have said that they will keep their production increases to just 3% a year over the next decade. Over the next five years, Mr. Sheffield reckons that energy firms will be the biggest dividend payers in the S&P 500. We're moving away from this generation of grow, 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 to distributing over um, half of our free cash flow, I mean, over half of our cash flow back to the investor base. And just a few years ago, they weren't paying any dividends at all. At least the shale companies weren't. And, and how is this affecting the, the structure of the industry? Is there a, a kind of shuffling of the big players in it? Yes. What you're seeing is a lot of consolidation. You can see this with Pioneer, Mr. Sheffield's company. It's already, uh, in the course of the last eight months or so, bought two shale companies that had land adjacent to it. You've also seen ConocoPhillips acquire Concho, a big Permian producer. And there is a sense that the oil majors, even the likes of Chevron, ExxonMobil, and perhaps Shell, may also divest some of their properties in the Permian, which would then allow the kind of disciplinarians like Pioneer to further constrain production growth. Are the, the frackers beginning to recast themselves like some of the bigger oil companies as, as somehow on the right side in climate change? There are efforts that they are making to reduce emissions by limiting, for example, methane leakages. But having said that, I did ask Mr. Sheffield, would they make steps to produce clean energy instead? 
And he said, no, not at this point. He felt that it wasn't the industry's responsibility to reduce emissions amongst the users of this fuel, for example, you know, drivers of cars, etc. So that marks quite a difference between the shale companies and some of the big oil majors like Shell. But it sounded from what you said earlier that Mr. Sheffield at least acknowledges that worries about climate change are a kind of cloud over his firm's prospects. I mean, is that fair comment for the industry as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's deeply ironic, really. It's it's sort of just at the moment when climate change has made it unfashionable to invest in oil, for the first time, the shale industry is becoming investable. You know, it's offering higher dividends and its share prices are going skyward. It's an attractive industry to invest in if you're not overly concerned about the environmental impact of your investing. And if the restraint that they talk about lasts, and and that's quite a caveat. I mean, there are still plenty of people in Texas surrounding the shale industries, bankers, etc., who take this pledge to restrain production with something of a grain of salt. It's not a given that the restraint will last, but while it does, it does seem to be producing a much healthier shale industry than the one that I covered about five years ago. Henry Tricks, Schumpeter, thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. And finally, to the next generation of miners. The treasure they seek is far more lucrative than oil or gas, though perhaps no cleaner. And in China, mining it just got a whole lot more complicated. Stephanie Studer went to meet some of China's cryptocurrency miners, who are facing their greatest challenge yet. Driving through the Hunduan Mountains of Sichuan Province in southwestern China, the landscape didn't exactly scream high-tech hub. The rivers were swollen brown with rainwater and the trees were heavy with ripe mangoes. But there were telltale signs, if you knew where to look. You see, you see those substations? You see these, those white houses with big fans? Mm. Uh, there are six buildings, six of them. you see? I see. We can see the side of them, right? Yeah, yeah. The white walls. Wow. Those giant fans installed in the walls were the giveaway. They're there to cool the towering racks of specialized computers stacked inside. 300 megawatts. So how, roughly how many machines is that? Uh, 100,000 miners. 100,000 across those six buildings? Yeah. These machines Rows upon rows of them are working to solve the complex mathematical problems that generate new Bitcoin. This particular mining farm is so big that my guide, a Bitcoin miner called Kirk Sue, tells me an entire community had to be relocated to build it. They moved a village of people. Wow. So they didn't have to pay a few million RMB per household. As compensation. A few million RMB. Eight, 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 eight households. If Mr. Sue's calculations are correct, that could be 450,000 US dollars per household. That's over $3 million just to pay off the former residents. The builders reckon the prize would be worth it. 
Until two months ago, China accounted for about 65% of global Bitcoin mining. The country boasts a killer combination of cheap land, cheap labor, excess energy, and advanced computing kit. But at mining farms like this one all across China, the whirring fans have now fallen silent and still. In May, a government financial stability committee vowed to put an end to Bitcoin mining. Miners were ordered to clear out computers and demolish buildings. Many had their power cut off. The clampdown has had a global impact. Bitcoin's hash rate measures worldwide computing power dedicated to mining. Since May, it has fallen by more than half. The authorities' target was probably not the miners themselves, but the people who trade cryptocurrency. Officials may also be worried about corruption, and another aim may have been to reduce carbon emissions. It's estimated that Chinese crypto miners used as much power every year as the whole country of Belgium. But since May, analysts think that as much as 90% of that activity has been shut down. So when we move in, last week, obviously we had a lot of helpers. Right. Um, You've moved all this in the space of one week? Three days. Three days. Yeah. Three days of work. Miners race to shut up shop. Yeah, we'll hire like 20 people here and help us um, offload. Kirk Sue also runs a logistics company moving mining machines. He showed me around an abandoned school he's using to store some of them. We couldn't fit everything in the, in the, in the actual warehouse, so, so we ended up using the actual kindergarten. There's something pretty surreal about seeing the brightly painted walls of the yeah. kindergarten with yeah. cartoons yeah. and then these machines. Yeah. China's crypto miners are generally flexible folk. They're used to upping sticks and driving their machines to wherever electricity is cheapest. But this time, the scale and speed of the shutdown are unprecedented. Kirk Su has been chartering Boeing 747s to get machines out of the country. Most go to Russia and Kazakhstan, but there are few data centers abroad with enough extra space. Building a farm in America, the world's second biggest miner, is too expensive for most in China. So Mr. Su reckons that more than half of China's mining machines will stay put for now. Some smaller miners are finding ways to operate. One tells me he has teamed up with a private hydropower station that is happy to sell him its extra power, despite the risks. But for now, most are either cutting their losses or biding their time. Okay, so now give us the grand total. Here, the two rooms we saw. As I toured the towers of machines uh, at the old school with Mr. Sue, I quickly lost count. 4,000 or so new generation. Maybe close to 4,000 of these old generations and uh, close to 2,000 of those. Uh, That's 10,000 at a rough count, stacked floor to ceiling, silent, still, and losing money. At least uh, a million RMB. So 150k USD and profit every day. Just these machines. Wowie. That's what he's losing right now. That's what he's losing right now. Our thanks to Stephanie Studer and to Kirk Sue. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. For an extra helping of Money Talks direct to your inboxes each week, you can sign up free to our new newsletter at economist.com slash money talks. 
The producers are Amika Shortino Nolan and Sarah Parry. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Spruelli. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.